Let me begin by asking you about um, what you mean uh, by the expression, the Chitlin Circuit. Sure. Well, it's the network of African-American owned and operated, owned and or operated clubs. Um, it's a it's a historic term, though the circuit is still active, but it was probably in its heyday between the 30s and, I'd say, the, the 70s. Mm-hmm. So it, it really was everything from a, it encompassed everything from a, you know, backwoods or rural dance hall for African-American patrons right on up to uh, the Regal Theater on the south side of Chicago uh, and all kinds of, of uh different sized and shaped venues in between. But, yeah, it went everything from rural juke joints to urban nightclubs right on, on to, up to the big city theater. But it was, you know, black music for a black audience, largely a uh, black-operated enterprise. Mm-hmm. And what is left of the Chitlin Circuit today? Yeah, you know, there are remnants of it. It is, historically, it was most heavily concentrated in the Deep South. But it had its offshoots up throughout the Northeast, mm-hmm. through the Midwest, Chicago and Milwaukee, all the way out to the West Coast, you know, Los Angeles, Oakland, even on up into Seattle. Uh, so it was it was a little bit more strung out on the West Coast and in the Northeast. But still, to this day, you know, there are Older, older fans of blues music, grown folks music, as, uh, as they call <laughs> it down home, who love to hear these songs about, uh, oh, romantic misadventure. And uh, that is the, really the basis for the, the Chitlin Circuit today. Artists like Bobby Rush, Denise LaSalle, uh, the late Bobby Blue Bland, you know, was a, a Chitlin Circuit stalwart just right on up till the end of his life recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's, it is today... Music serving a, a mature blues audience in the Deep South. You say that uh, when you got, uh, you know, your exposure to the Chitlin Circuit, I think you were talking about Bobby Rush, that uh, one of the things that you found appealing about it, it was just plain fun. And you said that's not a term that you would use to describe the quote-unquote authentic blues scene. What terms do come to mind when you think of the authentic scene? Well, I think of the authentic scene as being more geared towards celebrating the the, the history of blues. Um, and I think if you look at the, you know, you take a typical, I don't know, let's say like a Taj Mahal show. Uh, You've got a, a largely white, largely seated audience. And you take a Bobby Rush show, you've got a, a largely black audience that uh, that is dancing, drinking, celebrating having fun. It's just different. I like both. You know, it's not a judgment necessarily. It's more of a comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bobby comes through Springfield now and then. It's been a couple of years, but uh, his shows are the best. And, oh, my uh, gosh. Yes. He is raucous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and amidst all that fun is a lot of dancing, too. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, the you know, I mean, the Chillin' Circuit Blues show is much more about show. Whereas I think an authentic or a traditional blues show, traditional is probably a better word than authentic. Uh, I'd like to have that one back. Uh, you know, a traditional blues show is, is much more about the, the experiencing the music. You know, it's more of a, it's a quieter experience. It's about uh, about listening, about appreciating the music. And, uh, you know, a Bobby Rush show is about a party. Of course, yeah. B.B. King, of course, is unprecedented in the renown that he 
enjoyed worldwide. No other blues uh, singer uh, has um, has become quite the um, the household name uh, that B.B. King enjoyed uh, the status of for several decades. But uh, as international as B.B. was, as, uh, as a constant road warrior, and as a man whose mail drop, I think, was Las Vegas for many years, Memphis is really home for B.B. King, and it's where he got his start. And you cover that uh, quite comprehensively in the Chitlin Circuit and the Road to Rock and Roll. Tell us a little bit about B.B. King's background in Memphis. Sure. Well, you know, first you've got to start off with distinguished Memphis. Why did he go to Memphis? Well, he was from Mississippi, which of course isn't far away, so it was convenient. But it was Memphis was another world from Mississippi, even though it was nothing but, what, maybe 120 miles from where B.B. was born. Uh, it was like another planet. It was a black, well, of course, you look at Beale Street. Beale Street was known during uh, Mr. King's childhood and teenage years as the main street of black America. And this reputation of Beale Street radiated across the entire South. So it was connected, that great reputation was connected in the beginning to W.C. Handy, the father of the blues. Uh, he was really who made Beale Street famous nationally and who made uh, Beale Street associated with blues music. And so that Handy legacy really stayed strong on Beale Street and in Memphis long after the years of Handy's popularity were gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the real, really a, a powerful touchstone for African Americans across the South, was that blues music uh, and Beale Street. And so that is at least partially what drew Mr. King up there. Of course, he also had a family connection. His cousin, Booker White, lived in the city, another blues musician. So, And Mr. King had already become a musician down in Mississippi, and Memphis was just kind of a natural place to... Uh, to take his talents uh, during that time. But there was such a greater degree of, I would just say, independence for African-American people on Beale Street when you compare it to anywhere else in the South during this time. One of the draw, I mentioned the Handy legacy as being something that really distinguished Beale Street and had set it apart from virtually everywhere else in the South during the, the early 20th century. But by the time Mr. King got to the street, there was something else that distinguished it, and that was radio station WDIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Mr. King became a broadcaster not long after he arrived in the city. I think uh, within a couple of years of, uh, of taking up permanent residence in Memphis, he was he was on the air uh, playing records and plugging his, uh, his next gig. And so that was really the way that he, in a grassroots sense, built his fame people in Memphis during that time, and look, um, no less a source than Ernest Withers, who was, the, who was the living, breathing history of Beale Street throughout all this, this time period, said WDIA was as influential for Memphis African Americans as the NAACP. Everybody listened to it. Everybody listened to WDIA constantly. It was such a, a powerful force in a way that... Uh, a uh, few of us, I think, can comprehend radio as the, the force in people's lives at that time. Mm-hmm. And Mr. King was a part of that. And so, you know, in the early days, I don't think he made any money being on the air. Not much, anyway, but he got a little sponsorship from a uh, patent medicine that was mostly alcohol and uh, called Pepticon. Pepticon. He'd get on the air for 15, 30 minutes, play some records, do a Pepticon jingle, 
and say, well, come on out and, uh, and hear B.B. King perform at this joint or that joint tonight. And mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's how it began for him. Do you know how big its broadcast area was, WDIA? <laughs> I know it went to 50,000 watts oh. in... It was 50,000 watts by 1954. Okay, that's substantial, so especially... might have been part of the changeover. 50,000, that was huge, in mm-hmm. other words. So that you could... I've, I've been told that you could hear it at night from Chicago all the way down to New Orleans. Oh, all right. Yeah. Okay. And Ernest Withers, whom you referred to, of course, is um, uh, well known to many of us as a photographer who documented that uh, uh, Memphis and the uh, the Helena, Arkansas area and all of that uh, quite comprehensively for a a long time. Sure. And some of those iconic photographs of B.B. performing at the Beale Street joints like Club Handy, (laughs) uh, the West Memphis joints. A beautiful shot of B.B. and his, his big band that he toured with standing mm-hmm. outside of their tour bus on Beale Street was taken by Mr. Withers. Yes. And wasn't he more recently revealed as an FBI informant? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's another story. Of course, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know what? I want to tell you an interesting one right now uh, that, that includes Mr. Withers and Mr. King, uh, taken from my research of, of the book I'm working on right now, so I haven't published anything on this yet, so... I give you a uh, an exclusive sneak preview, but in the I want to say it was about '56 in Memphis. BB King was very well established by that time. Uh, he, in fact, was a national star for for many years. By that time, there was another national star coming out of Memphis uh, around that mid '50s period. And that was <laughs> Elvis Presley. Well, Elvis purportedly uh, enjoyed watching BB King and even got some guitar lessons from B.B. King, though I don't think they really took, uh, <laughs> before he became famous. And so those two had some history to him. Well, long about late 1956, there was a rumor in the press that Elvis used a racial slur. Um, and I don't know if what happened next was, was contrived in a publicity sense, but in any, in any case, one of the people who stepped forward to, uh, to defend Elvis was B.B. King. B.B. Mm-hmm. was there for Elvis when, uh, when he was accused of being a racist. Uh, they were photographed together at a WDIA Goodwill Review event by Ernest Withers, mm-hmm. yet another uh, iconic photo of B.B., an iconic photo of Elvis, uh, the two of them together, both in, the, in their, their youthful days uh, backstage at the WDIA Goodwill Review. That photograph ran in black papers across the country. And so it really helped to establish Elvis as a as a good guy because look, mm-hmm. white Memphians did not hang out at the WDIA Goodwill Review. They did not hang out. Uh they did not mix socially with African American people during that time. It was it was simply not done. For Elvis to do that, for it to be photographed, for him to, you know, willingly pose for photographs uh, with Mr. King was a huge deal, and I, I think that that's not always apparent when you look at that iconic photograph. What a what a big deal that was at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So back to BB getting his start as a uh, recording artist. Uh, he's at WDIA. He's picking up gigs on that uh, sort of local Chitlin circuit to West Memphis and across the river, and um, uh, he uh, he begins recording around that time. What led to that? Well, my understanding is that uh, 
he was recruited. And I believe the story goes that it was Ike Turner, who was uh, an artist in repertoire, or A&R man, who was working freelance for a record company out of Los Angeles. And what Ike would do was simply to find local talents, figure out if they had some material, and then round them up for uh, for recording sessions. Uh, the master recordings uh, could then be sent to the, the L.A. record company and, and released. And B.B. had a, enough enough clout, enough of a reputation, enough material, I guess, that, uh, that he, he appealed to Ike on this level. Um, and so that eventually led to B.B. King's first real big R&B hit, Three O'Clock Blues, which uh, came out in 1951. Was Ike uh, on that session? Yes. My understanding uh, is that <clears throat> Ike played piano on that, and really the entire lineup on that session is uh, just decorated with fascinating uh, Memphis music figures. Willie Mitchell played trumpet mm -hmm. in the horn section. If you hear those beautiful, mournful horns on that track. And named Ben Branch was a saxophonist, great band leader around Memphis, but is probably best known as being the person who uh, last spoke to Dr. Martin Luther King alive. Right. Um, kind of thing. So yeah, Ike, Willie Mitchell, Ben Branch, BB. Uh, it was really a, a momentous recording session at three o'clock in the morning blues, and and what a tremendous song. Ben Branch later went on to head the NAACP, didn't he? No, he he headed up, uh, you might be thinking of Ben Hooks out of Memphis, who was the uh, president of the NAACP nationally, but, but uh, Branch led the Operation Breadbasket Orchestra. Oh, yes. Which yes, was okay. a S SCLC, Jesse Jackson sure. project, mm -hmm. which yep. had him in the parking lot of the Lorraine Motel when uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis. Yes, yes. Now, there were some uh, critical um, uh, players in Memphis, uh, Sunbeam Mitchell, uh, Robert Henry, players, uh, figures who were new to me, not Sunbeam Mitchell necessarily, but certainly Robert Henry's name was new to me uh, when I read uh, the Chitlin Circuit book, and, uh, and, and especially, you know, the um, important role that he played in B.B. King's uh, early career. Uh, tell us a little bit about Robert Henry and what I understand was a kind of falling out that took place between... Uh, him and Mr. King. That's correct. Well, Robert Henry was B.B.'s first manager. And Robert Henry was, by the time B.B. came along, Robert Henry was, was a just about a celebrity on Beale Street. He was a dance promoter. And so he was really the key, one of the key entertainment figures in Beale Street, though not, on Beale Street, though not himself an entertainer. So he brought, you know, Duke Ellington and Jimmy Lunsford and Count Basie. He brought all of these nationally recognized big bands to the Beale Street Auditorium to perform. He also had a record shop right on Beale Street, which I think for a while doubled as a pool hall. So yeah, he was the he was the busy guy. He was involved in a whole lot of things. And when BB's first hit came out, I believe he was already yeah sure he was definitely already signed up. Uh, with Robert Henry, and so Robert Henry took him out and bought him these uh, <laughs> loud-colored tuxedos to go and play his first shows with. And BB said that he felt kind of foolish when he got up to the Apollo wearing this, you know, country burgundy and green tuxedo <laughs> or whatever it was. But uh, Robert Henry really did. He boosted BB's career early on. And I'll tell you, one of the stories that it really thrilled me to learn in, in researching the Chitlin Circuit's history was how 
that first hit record really came about for PB. Of course, Three O'Clock Blues was originally recorded by a man named Lowell Fulson. Mm-hmm. And Lowell Fulson was a very popular touring artist in his own right. And so Robert Henry, BB's manager, brought uh, Lowell Fulson to perform in Memphis. Uh, as I said, it was part of his uh, his job as a, as a promoter to bring all the top acts into town. So uh, I believe it was in 1950-51, uh, he brought... Robert Henry brought Lowell Folson to town, and Ray Charles, incidentally, was uh, Lowell Folson's band leader at the time, so mm-hmm. there was some serious talent to be reckoned with on the Chitlin' Circuit at this time. Well, Robert Henry had the problem of needing to uh, to fill the auditorium for this Lowell Folson dance, but he had a, a terrific asset in his corner, which was that his, another of his clients was a very popular DJ, that being B.B. King. And so B.B., in advance of the Lowell Folson show, played Lowell Folson records constantly, hyped up the show, told everybody when it was going to be, where it was going to be, uh, played the records, got everybody excited for it. So lo and behold, when it came time for uh, the Lowell Folson show to hit Memphis, the place was packed. <laughs> Afterward, uh, B.B. went to, to Mr. Folson and he said, uh, well, look, you know, I'm part of the reason that this went over so big. Uh, he didn't ask him for any payola, as was the custom of the time. He said, why don't you let me do this old song of yours, Three O'Clock Blues? And uh, Lowell Folson agreed to it. Well, now, wasn't there a similar arrangement that took place between B.B. and Lowell with Every Day I Have the Blues? Might very well have been, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, it's you know, it's it's interesting. It's a different sort of a twist on a... On a it was not so much a copyright issue that, that I think... B.B. needed Lowell's permission to do it. He could have done it, and as long as he, he handled the credits properly, would have been in the clear legally. It was more a respect issue of, you know, not wanting to, to take bread out of uh, Lowell Folson's pocket, because if people wanted to uh, hear that song, Three O'Clock Blues, and that was Lowell Folson's song, um, you know, he might not necessarily want other people performing that. Sure. Uh, there was a, a great... I don't know, controversy or great value on uh, an artist's name and an artist's reputation during that time. Uh, there were a lot of frauds out there on the road, you know, folks sure. claiming to be uh, famous artists and performing the, the stories about that or Legion. Mm-hmm. You know, this is sure. before um, artists were necessarily uh, recognizable. So, you know, me and you could show up to the dance hall and say we're Sonny Boy Williamson and B.B. King and uh, maybe get away with let's, it. Probably let's give not. it a try. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lowell is such an important figure, um, and, and, you know, he's increasingly, uh, you know, kind of obscured by time and, um, and uh, the years since he uh, 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 parted um, uh, this world. But uh, I was glad that B.B. Uh, brought him in for his uh, Blues Summit session 20 years ago. To, they did a little by little together, and I, I know that Lowell was was important to BB with Three O'Clock Blues and with, uh, you know, that arrangement of Every Day I Have the Blues. It's Memphis Slim's song, but it was Lowell yeah. Folson's arrangement that BB covered. Okay, and, uh, right. And it became, uh, you know, his traditional show opener for, for many years. And, you know, and what you're saying, too, uh, reminds me that BB was just so respectful of, um, uh, you know, of, of, of his elders, of his colleagues, that it doesn't surprise me at all that he would want to check it out with uh, Mr. Folson before... He performed it uh, before the Memphis crowd. So, oh, I um, think that you know the general impression of BB as a a warm personality and a gentleman is is absolutely true from 
little bit of personal experience and a lot mm-hmm. of secondhand experience. Um, sure. I'll tell you one in terms of, of taking care of people who helped him. Uh, referring back again to that iconic Ernest Withers photograph of the big band outside of the tour bus on Beale Street. Well, the driver for the B.B. King tour at that time was a man named Cato Walker. He was the, the very first driver of the big B.B. King tour, and of course they were on the, the Chitlin circuit. And yeah, yeah. Walker was the valet, you know, roadie, basically. I mean, he did a little bit of everything. He even performed sometimes. What he didn't do was sleep very much, so you know he'd have to wait until they were done with their gigs at two and three in the morning, and then drive them on to the next place. Well, BB never forgot that. Uh, Mr. Walker passed away in the eighties, uh, but I came along to Memphis in uh, the mid two thousand and met uh, Cato Walker's widow, Polly Walker, and was talking to her. I was interviewing her one day about all of this history, Beale Street music. She's tremendously knowledgeable. And uh, all of a sudden, her phone starts ringing, and her fax machine starts starts going off. And she says, excuse me, I need to catch this. So she goes over and uh, reads the fax. She said, I'm sorry, i got to go. The boss needs me. I said, what do you mean the boss needs you? And she said, well, I still work for B.B. <laughs> so, you know, B.B. kept his the wife of his first bus driver on the payroll, you know, 60 mm-hmm. years after after they'd gone on the road together. I mean, that's it's just a tremendous sense of loyalty. And, and, you know, that was not a publicity leak or a press release. That was just a completely natural happenstance uh, event that in which I learned about this arrangement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, I think it, it, it attests to just what a, a truly good man we're discussing. Uh, Ron Levy, who played piano with B.B. for half a dozen years or so in the early 70s, uh, just the other day was saying that there's no tighter fraternity in music than the present and former uh, members of the B.B. King Orchestra. Mm-hmm. That the, the loyalty is, uh, is really fierce. Um, and, of course, uh, inspired by Mr. King himself. So back to Robert Henry now and, um, and uh, B.B.'s early um, uh, success with 3 O'Clock Blues and um, and uh, enter the picture, entering the picture around this time, I believe, if if I have the chronology straight, is the um, is the legendary, some might say, infamous Don Roby. Tell us, <laughs> yeah. tell us about a bit uh, a bit about Mr. Roby and and how he interfaces with BB King's uh, career and success. Sure. Well, Mr. Roby is, uh, as you say, infamous. Uh, at the very least, very well known as uh, the Chitlin Circuit kingpin of Houston, Texas. He ran a beautiful nightclub called the Bronze Peacock in the late 40s, and from there transitioned into the, the recording business and ran a talent agency. So the, the record company was called Peacock Records initially, and he eventually um, acquired, uh, in a story adding to his infamy, uh, Duke Records in Memphis that a lot of B.B.'s friends, including Bobby Bland, recorded for. So Roby uh, had an interest in Memphis music, that came about through his association with Sunbeam Mitchell. Sunbeam was uh, owner of, I'm trying to think what the name, the name of the club was, a, a club on the corner of Beale Street and Hernando Street, which was really the, the epicenter uh, for Memphis music during uh, the 40s and the 50s. It was a place where the musicians would jam and a lot of the out-of-town acts would come and play. Sounded like a heck of a fun place. <laughs> But these guys, Roby and Sunbeam, you know, they were essentially business partners in that they both uh, promoted artists, promoted dances, 
and they both made money in in certain extra legal ways in addition to uh, their music investments. It was all connected. Uh, and that's one of the exciting storylines of the Chitlin Circuit, but that's neither here nor there. So I believe it's it was probably through Sunbeam that Roby came to know B.B., and from what I have, have heard from other artists, he loved B.B. He wanted to own B.B.'s uh, recording contract, to represent B.B. on the road. He was determined to get B.B. into his organization. Actually did a recording session with B.B. while B.B. was under contract to uh, the company out there in L.A., Modern Records. Uh, and I don't know if those recordings have ever come to light, but that just indicates you know, how committed Roby was to working with B.B. But in order to do that, he had to, uh, Roby had to step on some toes. And so he had some sort of a dispute with Robert Henry, B.B.'s uh, first local manager in Memphis, mm-hmm. about uh, representing B.B. That Roby had this way of winning these disputes. <laughs> I'm not sure precisely what happened with Henry, because there's no record of that. But uh, Roby was a tough guy, and he wasn't going to be denied. Right. And so Roby became BB's second manager right around probably the time of that uh, that tour bus and that photograph I've referred to a couple of other times. So it was really Roby and his partner Evelyn Johnson mm-hmm. with the Buffalo Booking Company uh, that got BB going nationally in a big way. Uh, yes, BB had played some some uptown high profile gigs for Robert Henry under Robert Henry's management. But those were kind of one-offs, you know, when B.B. had a hot record. It was Roby and Evelyn Johnson that kept B.B. on the road. That is really where B.B. became the road warrior that we recognize him as today, was was working for Mr. Roby. It must have been um, uh, the the Bahari brothers who own modern records uh, had to have been a formidable uh, combination um, if they maintained their uh, connection with B.B. as, um, or, or, you know, that B.B. maintained his connection with modern RPM records, because I can only imagine how uh, Don Roby uh, wanted and must have tried um, uh, various methods of signing B.B. to uh, Duke Peacock. Yeah, and, you know, Roby, it wasn't all um, intimidation with him. I mm-hmm, mean, sure. Roby would take, somebody, would take somebody to court in a heartbeat, too. Yep. Uh, he won a, a lawsuit against Sam Phillips in, in Memphis. So, yeah, I, I would have to think that, that Roby tried to get B.B.'s recording contract and, and just couldn't. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the nature of the lawsuit between Roby and Sam Phillips? Oh, yeah, sure. It was it was just over Bearcat. You know, oh, Bearcat okay. was the Hound Dog, Thomas of course. Aunt, yeah, right, yep. answer mm-hmm. song to, to uh, Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog. Sure. So Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog was Don Roby's song. Uh, I think that was on Peacock, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so a short time later, you know, Sam Phillips produced Bearcat, and it was deemed in court to be a (laughs) ripoff. Of course. (laughs) I think he had to pay Roby a few thousand dollars for that. I see. Now, you note in the Chitlin Circuit that that Robert Henry's name is basically absent from B.B.'s biography uh, and autobiography, and uh, it certainly, you know, it was a new name to me when I read Shetland Circuit. So, you know, it's a, there's a sad uh, 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 element to that story. Yeah, and I can't say I, I understand why that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than, look, B.B., he's been around for such a long time. 
and I know him as a as a, a good person, a gentleman, an honorable man. I would have to think it's simply a, uh, that he himself forgot and or overlooked it, and uh, you know it took somebody like me going back <laughs> through the records and really digging everything up and, and putting that information back together. Uh, but yeah, I mean, geez, by the time BB really started doing his his retrospective uh, history. He's been on the road for, what, 50 years. So sure. there's mm-hmm. probably uh, one or two guys that he's forgotten at that time. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Back to, uh, you know, the origins of, uh, of Memphis as uh, Beale Street, as uh, the main street of black America. B.B.'s arrival in Memphis uh, around 19, what is it, 46 or 7. Um, uh, B.B. recalls, or he speaks very almost elegiacly about um, W.C. Handy. He says, uh, you know, that he could feel the esteem of Mr. Handy in his uh, early experiences there uh, in Memphis. Um, And uh, I know that you're doing, um, um, you know, uh, much deeper uh, work around Beale Street and Memphis and the history there. And uh, just wonder, you know, if you have some more to say about W.C. Handy. uh, Yeah, absolutely. You know, the he is the one who made the blues a popular music form. So it existed before he came sure. along. Mm-hmm. But he was the, the composer who, you know, wrote it out. And then, look, this is before recordings were really either done done much or, or very popular. People didn't really listen to recordings. They weren't widely available. Music was disseminated either on sheet music written in composition or in live performance. That was it. There was no radio broadcast. There was no no recording, or little recording. And so Handy was the one that took the blues from, you know, from Beale Street, uh, from the uh, from the levee where the workers sang, from uh, the train platform in uh, Mississippi where some lonesome old guy was playing his guitar, from all of these scattered folk sources, quilted them together, identified it as the blues, and had, and circulated it. So it was really handy who established blues as popular music. So you got that. Well, his compositions included Memphis Blues, St. Louis Blues, which became the most recorded song of the, the 20th century, and the Beale Street Blues. So that is what his reputation rests on. All of those songs were composed uh, and originally published on Beale Street. So he has this huge reputation. That's the first part of it. The second part of it is the Handy Legacy, which is really important and, and I think just about unique in the South. Look, you know about the South and race relations. It ain't pretty. Handy's a black man. He accomplished these tremendous feats and became this well-recognized figure in, in American history. That, in and of itself, for a black man was rare during that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the compositions, his compositions came out in the 1910s. So that was rare enough. Then you have a southern city, Memphis, recognize that legacy. So what what happened there was that uh, there's a little place called Handy Park, which is still there on Beale Street to this very day. Uh, So to have a a municipality name a city park after a black guy, to honor him in that way, I don't know that there's another example of that. Uh, that, that took place in the South. So that was dedicated in 1931. Wow. Okay. And a short time after that, a statue yes. of W.C. Mm-hmm. Handy was, mm-hmm. was erected in that park, and it's still there to this day. And again, this is an almost unique, if not totally unique, honor bestowed upon an African-American 
uh, in the South during this time. So earlier when I spoke of the, the legacy and the aura of Handy on Beale Street, I mean, it's a very tangible thing. That legacy was not forgotten. It was recognized, and it was there for everybody to see, to be aware of, to remember. And that recognition of black achievement through music was a powerful motive for people like B.B. to participate. Mm-hmm. And uh, Handy, uh, I can't, um, I don't have a list of songs in front of me, nor in my mental Rolodex, but uh, Memphis Blues is based on the mayoral campaign, isn't it? The Mayor Crump? doesn't Exactly. It? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you had two uh, phenomena really being born together. That was Handy's Blues, which uh, were first composed as Mr. Crump, as yes. a campaign tune for the uh, mayoral candidate, E.H. Crump. And the Crump Machine, this uh, hugely influential, um, politically influential uh, machine of which Mr. Crump was the mastermind, ran Memphis and most of the state of Tennessee and had influence on up into the White House for much of the mid-20th century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you know, if, by the way, if Crump is a common name around Memphis? Oh, yeah, there are some Crumps around. Because okay. there's a bassist uh, in the uh, jazz world today who works with Vijay Ayers. Um, you know, highly um, acclaimed trio named Stephen Crump, and I know he's huh. from Memphis. I wonder if he's... Oh, interesting. Well, I have met a Stephen Crump who is Mr. Crump's, oh, I don't know, grandnephew or something. So there there were, in Mr. Crump's family, there were several boys. They all had several children. I think we're into uh, their grandchildren and great-grandchildren now. But yeah, they are, there's a lot of them in Memphis, and, and uh, they're active in all sorts of areas. Mm-hmm. And just back to uh, Handy again and Crump, and just to um, you know, kind of underscore that that uh, that the Crump campaign would um, uh, would be using you know music composed by an African American certainly speaks to the kind of mainstream incursion that uh, that W. C. Handy had uh, had uh, accomplished. Yeah, well, that's that's a, that's an interesting thing to focus on because it, that was unintended. It happened. You're right. Uh, but what, 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 one of the things that set Beale Street apart throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries was that Memphis had the, this large black population, and the black vote remained in full effect. Uh, whereas throughout the South, after Reconstruction, the, all black political rights were, were done away with. In Memphis, uh, state of Tennessee, for whatever reason, the, the black vote was never, I mean, it was attacked at some points, but... Uh, was never completely done away with as it was in other places. And so hmm. Handy was supposed to drum up the black vote. The black vote was very much sought after in these local elections, and Handy was supposed to drum up the black vote for Mr. Crump. That was supposed to be the extent of his participation in the campaign, was on the black side. But what happened, this, this song was just so catchy uh, that Andy tells this great story about the first time that he played the blues for what he called the general public. That was his code for white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, <laughs> the non-general public had known about the blues for a long time, but the first time he played for the general public was for the campaign uh, in downtown Memphis at the very prominent location of the corner of Main Street and Madison Avenue. And uh, you know, he tells this great story about how... Um, executives were, uh, you know, there's big tall office buildings all around, and he could look up into the, the this, these buildings and see executives twirling their stenographers, and, uh, <laughs> you know, a very nice early 20th century scene. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, 
So the esteem that uh, Bibi and many other African Americans felt toward uh, Mr. Handy um, was very much uh, present uh, uh, in the late 40s and um, um, when Bibi was uh, making his... Uh, right, so I mentioned Sunbeam Mitchell's club earlier where Bibi was a regular. Uh, Mitchell changed the name of his club uh, the reason I hiccuped there a little bit, it had a number of names, even though it was always in the same location, but he changed the name of that place to Club Handy oh, yeah. after mm-hmm. W.C. Handy passed away in 1958. And so, yeah, B.B. Uh, was a regular there at Club Handy until it closed in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Of course, when Louis Armstrong recorded his tribute to uh, to Handy in 1954 or 5, uh, Handy was in the studio uh, mm-hmm. for at least one of those dates in New York, and Armstrong always spoke with, um, you know, just the greatest uh, uh, reverence and sense of honor that uh, that Handy had um, had come by the studio that day in New York, and that's one of Louis Armstrong's greatest uh, latter day recordings, you know. Well, uh, yeah, the the influence and prestige of Handy is uh, hard to hard to remember properly now uh, the extent of his prestige and influence uh, uh, during his life. I mean, it was it was just huge. Mm-hmm. And yeah, to say that, it, that he touched Louis Armstrong, I'm not surprised. Yes, when Armstrong uh, appeared as a guest of Leonard Bernstein in the New York Philharmonic later in the 50s, they performed uh, St. Louis Blues in a, you know, an elaborate uh, uh, orchestration by, uh, by Bernstein. Um, Mr. Bernstein, as Pops called him, and um, I've got to double-check, but I, no, uh, Handy would not have been in the audience because if he died in 58, uh, I think that was the same year as that concert. In uh, any event... Well, um, if you find an old recording of W.C. Handy's Memphis Blues, it's it's a little hard to get through. It's, it's grainy mm-hmm. and poppy and sounds too fast. It looks like a, a highlight of a Babe Ruth home run. But uh, it sounds like that. Uh, just sounds a little off. Oh, sure. But yep. listen to that, and then listen to George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, mm-hmm. uh, and you will understand what Gershwin meant when he <laughs> autographed a copy of that sheet music to Handy and said, thanks, couldn't have done it without you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Um, well, um, I could talk with you for a week or more, and um, we should probably... Uh, wrap this up for the time being. I, I, I'm very eager to read the Beale Street volume that's on the way, and let's get back and touch around that. But let me just ask if... Yeah. Well, oh, you're in Virginia, so it's a mute moot point. I was going to ask if you were going to go over to Beale tomorrow for oh, the uh, procession man. of the hearse. Um, uh, I, I hate uh, having to miss that. That yeah. killed me. I'd mm-hmm. love to be able, be able to go over there. But uh, yeah, that that will be a, a really wonderful thing. I'm, I'm thrilled that that is happening. That's the, the right way for uh, for BB to go out down mm-hmm. Beale Street one more time, mm-hmm. and then down to Indianola for a burial and funeral service on Thursday. And have you been to um, you know the museum and all that BB has uh, has helped uh, construct in Indianola? It's incredible, and I think that's one of the things that I wish that I'd heard more of in the national tributes and read more about in the in the you know big city newspaper obituaries honoring Mr. King. How connected he remained to his home, developing that museum, is uh, is a tremendous accomplishment. And you know, he always went back to a little club on uh, Church Street in downtown Indianola, uh, currently called the Club Ebony. Mm-hmm. But it was a club where he remembered first hearing Count Basie in the '30s, 
and then later performed many times on his way up, actually married the daughter of uh, one of Club Ebony's owners oh, at really? one point. So this was a oh. place that was very dear to him, and he, he never forgot it. How, however big he got and however in demand he was, he always went back and played Club Ebony in Indianola every summer. I understand sometimes that those weren't even listed on the itinerary. But they... uh, yes. In fact, it was, okay, this is just something that I heard. I, I, I can't verify this, but, but yes, I have have heard that it was it was a separate deal from his normal management structure. In other words, they were they obviously they would not charge Club Ebony whatever BB's normal Carnegie Hall fee would have been for that <laughs> right. night. So it was a separate deal that BB did for charity. For a while it was known as the Medgar Evers homecoming, honoring uh, the slain NAACP activist of Jackson, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So B.B. goes back home, all the way home, uh, uh, for burial uh, Thursday. Uh, Poignant. Yes. Okay. Uh, Preston, a real pleasure to speak with you. Until the next time, um, thanks again, and uh, have a good day. Thanks for having me, Tom. Enjoyed it. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right.